Let's have a look into Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. Uh, That's on page uh, 1016 of the Bibles nearby. Because we're going to be uh, looking at this account. People come to Jesus and they ask him questions here. As we've already heard. We're thinking about the subject, uh, it's called questioning the king. Uh, All through these uh, uh, talks on Mark's gospel, the second half of Mark's gospel, we see Jesus kind of presenting himself, uh, arriving now in Jerusalem as uh, the king. He's claimed to be the king. People are recognizing him as the promised Messiah who would come. Remember last time, two weeks ago, we were thinking about how he rode into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey and people who saw him come. Uh, We don't know whether it was a huge crowd or just a crowd of followers, but anyway, a crowd of some nature cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, they shout and they wave palm leaves and they put their cloaks on the ground and all that kind of thing we heard about after uh, a couple of weeks ago. And then the very next day, he comes back into the temple of Jerusalem. And uh, there's that incident that somebody mentioned earlier on, when it appears that Jesus just, in anger really, just kind of was so outraged with what was going on. He drives out the business people who had filled up the outer court of uh, of the temple where Gentiles were supposed to be allowed to come and worship. And they filled it with their businesses. And Jesus drives them out and says, You've turned, this should be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And because the authorities who see him do that are absolutely furious, but they can't arrest him uh, because the crowd love him and the crowd were there at the time. So it's all going on, it's all kicking off in the temple as Jesus the king kind of comes to the king's city, of day, the city of David, Jerusalem, and starts to kind of talk and explain and have discussions with people. And that's what's going to be going on now. This is the last week of Jesus' life. And most of this week is going to be spent uh, talking, teaching, discussing, explaining in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And behind it is this question. What does it mean for Jesus to be this king? And for us, the question might be, well, why should Jesus be my king? That's what they thought in Jerusalem, and it's the same question today. Why why should Jesus, what right has Jesus got to be my king? That's the question that they're asking him. So let's read, first of all, chapter 11, verses 27 onwards to see what happens first. So here we go. Uh, They, that's Jesus and his disciples, arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, there we are, the place he was before, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. "And, And who gave you the authority to do this? And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. And they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origins, and they feared the people because everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So here they are, then, a group of officials, 
elders, teachers of the law, all part of the ruling council uh, of the Sanhedrin, priests, the chief priests. The chief priests' family, we read in John's Gospel, were a powerful political family, the family of Caiaphas. If you, you can read up about them in some of the background stuff. And they arrived to ask Jesus a pretty serious question. And you can understand it. This was their temple. They were the temple authorities. They were the ones who were responsible, the priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. That was their, it was their business, if you like. It was their place. What right did Jesus have to come and throw out the businesses out of their place? It wasn't his temple. It was their temple. Quite literally, they were the ones that run it. What authority do you have to do this? And, and who gave it to you? Maybe they think, well, because it wasn't us, <laughs> at least. Maybe there was someone else in there. Maybe they're asking him to, you know, like Doctor Who, get out a piece of paper and, you know, and say, this is, this is my, the, the reason I'm doing it. I'm from the temple inspector or whatever. That's the kind of question. You can understand it. You can see uh, why they were not. Uh, we can see why they were annoyed, why they were really hacked off by this. Who does Jesus think he is coming in and acting like this in our temple? You get the feeling. I wonder whether we think like that sometimes. What right has this Jesus got to tell me what to do with my life? It's mine. It's my area. It's my patch. Why should I take any notice of you, Jesus? I've got it all sorted, thank you. I quite like the businesses. I quite, it all seems to work for me, just like the temple seemed to work for them. I don't need you coming here and kicking stuff out of the way and messing it up. What right have you got to do that? We can understand how the temple guys might be feeling. Perhaps we can feel like that too. Well, Jesus agrees to tell them, as we saw, if they answer his question. And he says, you answer my question and I'll answer yours. And and that was a kind of very Jewish way of dialoguing and stuff anyway. But it's also very smart. He says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from human beings? Now, remember, John the Baptist had made a huge impact. He was off the scene by now because he was arrested by Herod and subsequently executed. But John had made a huge impact around Jerusalem. People had gone to Jerusalem. They were being, had been baptized by him in the Jordan. He would called them to repent, to get ready for God to come. God was coming. The king was coming into their lives. You better get ready, was John the Baptist's message. And uh, where did that, that come from? You see, God had been silent for 400 years before John showed up. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel for centuries until he arrived on the scene. And now God is speaking again through this prophet. And everybody, the people, recognize that God is in this. This is what's happening. But the religious people don't like it. They weren't going to go with John. That way he didn't suit their agenda at all. And the temple leaders can't answer because they say, well, if we say it's from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you get baptized and do what John said? If they say it's not from heaven, then the crowd are going to get very grumpy indeed because there's always a crowd around. So they decide not to say. And Jesus says, well, I'm not saying anything either. Now, what's that about? Is Jesus just trying to silence them to make a smart point? Or is there something more to it? Why does Jesus answer in this way? Well, it isn't just to shut them up. It's not just to stop, you know, the questions. Jesus is saying something else. See, he's pointing them to to what the crowd knew and what maybe they knew as well was that something is happening. 
He's saying something is happening. It was happening with John, and it's happening with Jesus. Because Jesus and John are tied very closely together in the Gospels. In Mark's Gospel particularly, if you go back to the very first chapter, it starts with John the Baptist preaching the word in the desert. That's how the whole story begins. And they're tied together, and they were tied together in, 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 certainly in God's purposes, and in the people's minds as well. Do you remember when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Do you remember what they said? Some say you are John the Baptist. So there's this connection that people had between Jesus, what he was doing, and what John was doing. And Jesus is saying, look, heaven is doing something here. This is God at work through John. And Jesus' answer implied is that his authority was from heaven, just as John's was. So why should Jesus be their king? Why should Jesus be my king? Why should he be your king? Well, here's one reason. Because God is doing something special in Jesus. And that is a big deal. It was a big deal then because God had been silent for 400 years and nothing had seemed to have happened. And so when Jesus comes and says, heaven is doing something, and it's doing something, God is doing something through me, uh, through John rather, then, and through Jesus, it was a big deal. And I think it's a big deal today. Not because God has been silent, but because for three or four hundred years, we have believed in our culture in the West that God doesn't do anything, that God is nowhere. And actually, the, the truth is, that isn't right. Heaven is a reality. I don't mean heaven the place we go, but heaven, i.e. God's intervention. The God who made us, the God we're accountable, is to be reckoned with in our thinking. See, we don't believe it, but we're wrong. And I think secretly we know we're wrong because our humanity tells us we're wrong. Because something in us wants to believe that heaven can do something for us. And we know that, and we really know it when we haven't got it all together. We really know it when we could die of a virus. Or we really know it when we could lose the entire planet. We know that we need heaven's activity on earth, don't we? Well, you don't have to admit it. Think about it. We come to the end of ourselves, the end of our achievements. Our gods are dead and useless for anything that really matters. For goodness sake, those of us who've got pension funds that we think is fine, within three weeks, if there's a global crash, we won't have any. And it's at those times that we realize that heaven may have something to say. Jesus matters. He better be my king. Without him, without heaven... Without God doing something, we're stuffed. Now and in the future too, when we face him. So that's Jesus' first point. Why should he be our king? Because heaven, God, is involved in this. Then he goes on to tell them a story. Now we all love a good story, don't we? Friday was, National, was World Book Day. Saw some great pictures. My grandson... Uh, was some kind of cat, I think. Uh, our granddaughter went to school in a 
pajamas. I think that's what they did in Shirley Infants. Lots of our kids were doing all kinds of things. Well, here's a great story. Let's read it. This is a story Jesus tells to the Jewish authorities in chapter 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard of his body. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This parable kind of speaks for itself, or it certainly would have spoken for itself if you were the person hearing it. Because in the Old Testament, God speaks in the book of Isaiah chapter 5, uh, he, he paints a picture of Israel being like a vineyard. He says, God, I, God says, Israel, you're like a vineyard. I've planted it. I've put a watchtower in it and all of that. And Jesus is quoting uh, Isaiah. And at the time, absent landlords let their land and were paid with the produce from the land. That was the rent. And here's a story. The landlord sends servants, so they get beaten. Then he finally sends a son whom he loves. Remember that phrase? That's kind of occurred before two or three times when God has spoken in Mark's gospel. And they think that the sons but come because the landlord's dead. That's their reasoning. And this kind of would happen at the time. So if the landlord had died, then the son would have come. And then, of course, the son is the heir to the vineyard. And they kind of figure, well, actually, if the son's dead... Nobody owns the vineyard, so as settled tenants, we can claim the vineyard for ourselves. That's the kind of background to the story. That kind of thing kind of happened. That was part of their their, their regular mindset, and that's what they decide to do. And there's this chilling pointer to what's going to happen. Jesus will be killed so that the Israel vineyard can stay in the hands of the high priest family. Business can continue as usual. That's, you know, superficially why he died, or so they thought. But they lose the vineyard and are destroyed. But that's not the punchline. Because Jesus adds something by quoting from Psalm 118 in verse 10. And it's a picture there of builders who you know, are building a, a structure, maybe a temple or a big building. And they think, what should we... Oh, we don't want that stone. Get rid of that stone. That's rubbish. We don't want that stone get rid of it and then it later that stone that they threw away 
becomes the capstone or the cornerstone. It becomes the, you know, ancient buildings, they were built around a, a keystone that kind of set them in, in line each way. Or sometimes it would be at the top where, again, it would hold everything together. And the picture is of a, a stone that gets rejected becomes the most important stone in the building of all. And the point is, again, it's God that does this. You see that it says, this is the Lord's doing. The Lord has done this. It's the same point again. God is at work here. And what is God doing? What is it that's so marvelous? The rejected stone becomes the part that holds everything together. Jesus is the center of everything. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be thrown away. They think they're going to get rid of him, but actually he's going to become the, 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 the thing that holds everything, gives everything coherence. That's what the psalm is saying. And that's what Jesus says is the punchline of his story. Why should Jesus might be my king? Because the rejection is temporary. Because he's risen. And he is now the center of everything. Because God has exalted him. Our lives can connect with him. Everything can be put in place around him. Everything else may fall apart, but he holds us together. He is heaven's king. For us individually, in my life, in your life, and together here and with God's people worldwide, sharing in that kingdom, living that kingdom so that others can find him. Can we live this whilst everything is falling apart? So at the cross, when Jesus was rejected, it was at that moment that God exalts him and he becomes the center of everything. The cornerstone. And I think it's important that that is the punchline of the parable. See, Jesus isn't threatening them with losing the vineyard and being destroyed, although he he does say that. But his main point is, look what you'll miss. You're going to miss God doing something amazing, putting everything right through Jesus. And we give our lives to Jesus as king, not to avoid judgment and loss, You give your life to Jesus because he's the pinnacle of all God says, of all God does, of all God is. That's why he's our king. Not being judged is a bonus, I'd say. He is the rejected stone that can become the rock our lives can be built upon. And we as believers keep coming to him. Peter says we keep coming to him, the living stone, being built together. Because he puts us together as our rubble and ruins are built into something that is filled with his glory. That's our king. Now sadly, the people who first heard this turned their backs on it. They walked away and were even more determined to get rid of Jesus. Don't be like them. Let's read what happens next, verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. 
You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius, it's a small coin, and let me look at it. They bought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? He showed them the coin. Who's that there on that coin? And they say, well, it's Caesar's image. And Jesus said, well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So they hatch a plot. This time they send other officials. These are Sadducees and Herodians. The Herodians were a bit more political than the others, although they were pretty political. They supported Herod Antipas. And the way that Herod was kind of part of, in inverted commas, he was one of the puppet governors of the Roman Empire. So they were pretty pro the empire. And so taxes to Caesar would have been part of their success narrative. You know, if anyone said, what have the Romans done for us? Then they would have answered in that kind of a way. They were very much on the Roman kind of side. So it was a question they would have asked. And they have this long introduction. It seems to us it's all very kind of uh, flannelly and, you know, buttering him up and trying to say very nice things about Jesus. But actually, it, it's actually preventing Jesus from giving one of his question with a question answers. He, they're kind of saying to him, we know you always tell the truth. We know you won't, you know, duck down from question. We know that you're direct, so answer our question directly. It's a bit like John Humphreys on the Today program. Answer it in the old days. Answer me yes or no. You know, taxes to Caesar or not. And, you know, we want a straight answer. It's a brilliant question. Should you pay Caesar's tax? If Jesus says no... Well, they can arrest him there and then for treason. That will be their problem solved immediately. If he says yes, then he's going to lose the crowd because nobody likes paying taxes to Caesar. And if, they, if he loses the crowd, they can arrest him later because the crowd aren't protecting him anymore. So it's actually a brilliant question to ask him if you want to trap him. Perfect. Also, they're asking him, is his kingship going against Caesar's? Which is also a very good question. And one actually that the church has faced in every generation since. But Jesus' reply is even more brilliant. Dallas Willard said of the Lord Jesus, he said, he is the smartest man that ever lived on the planet. He knows everything. Well, he does. He's the son of God. The smartest man, here's the smartest man who'd ever lived, answering an impossible question in the smartest way. He gets a denarius, the coin that was used to pay the tax. They have a discreet, as we've read. And he says, look, it's Caesar's, give it to Caesar, but give God what's his. Now what's interesting about this is that on the coin, so the scholars tell us, was a statement that said actually that Caesar is God. That was written on the coin. So actually, Jesus in saying, this is Caesar's, give it to Caesar, but there is stuff that is God's. Jesus is quietly kind of saying, actually, there's Caesar and there's God. They are not one and the same thing. So there's a lot going on here, really. 
Why should Jesus be my king? Well, I'm going to say because he is so smart. He's so wise. He knows the best way to live. His kingship is for the good of everyone. He's not there to overthrow the government. Although he does make it clear that there's another loyalty beyond the government. And that's going to become the way that Jesus' disciples follow him as their king. And we still do. I hope. (laughs) We're contributing loyal citizens. But we acknowledge that we have another loyalty to God. And when that comes into conflict, then Jesus is our Lord. And the Chinese believers are in that place right now. That Chinese pastor who has been, I think, is in prison for nine years. In the open letter, he said, we want to honor the government. We want to be good citizens. We want to do what the government wants. But Jesus is our Lord. We can only go so far. But we'll do everything we can to honor the government where that's possible. In the AD 200s, Bishop Dionysius, who was a bishop in Rome, uh, wrote about Christians caring for those caught up in plagues that were overwhelming Rome at the time. A hundred years later, another bishop, uh, this is the bishop of Caesarea, so that's in the kind of uh, Israel today, but it was a big city, important city in the Roman Empire, key is in the name, Caesarea, He writes about a plague that left all the rich and powerful fleeing to the countryside where it was healthier. And he wrote this, all day long, some of them, that's the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. He goes on to say, because of their compassion in the midst of the plague, the Christians, quotes, deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. You see, they were giving to God what was God's and Caesar's people got blessed as well. I don't know, maybe that's relevant for us today. That's not prescriptive. But it's interesting, isn't it? So then, Jesus is king because heaven touches earth in him. And heaven comes into my life and yours by the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Because he is the one, he's king because he's the one God has made the foundation, the center point, the place where everything comes together. And as those who love and follow our King Jesus... We love God. We give God what is his. But we also live as citizens. Good citizens. That's why Jesus can be our king. And it can make a difference. We pray often. We sang it at the beginning. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's not miss it. It is in many ways the only way to really live in what Jesus calls abundant life. The kingdom is about living his way with him by his spirit. Heaven, heaven's king living in us, enabling us to reflect him to others.
Let's be his people, gladly, in whatever comes our way in the next week or two.